Welcome to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, a podcast about those life-altering experiences that shape who we are today and those times when we were not totally fine. I'm your host, Tiffany Philippou, and I've written a memoir, Totally Fine and Other Lies I've Told Myself. Each episode, I'm joined by a guest who'll tell me their story about a time that they pretended to be totally fine. I know what it's like to pretend to be okay, and that's what my book is about. After my boyfriend Richard died by suicide, I spent most of my 20s pretending that this never happened. I know that it's not just what happens to us, but the stigma we feel and how we suppress it that's the real problem. So here's why we're having these conversations, to quiet the shame monster and to remind us that we're not alone. I mean, it's impossible to think that we'll be able to cover the whole sum of experience of baby loss and almost motherhood in British society in the space of 15, 20 pieces. But I want to get as flipping close to it as possible. Gosh, I certainly, um, just that idea of grieving for the life you could have had if you'd have known earlier sounds incredibly painful. Fuck me, I've no idea what normal feels like. Certainly not to me. But I feel like I can concentrate on a task. I feel like I can focus. And also, this year I've completely ripped up the way that I work. I'm not doing full-time contracts. I'm not doing nine-to-fives. Years of trying to be like everybody else, but failing. Not least because of what was in my brain, but because I'm a redhead and I'm six foot one. So... I don't look like a model, which would probably be the only way that that would be acceptable. And I have a voice like somebody who's fallen out of Downton Abbey. And it's just, yeah, it was always a complete fail from the start to try and be like everybody else. Today I'm joined by Kat Brown. Kat Brown is a London-based freelance journalist whose work has appeared in The Telegraph, Grazia, The Independent, The Times, and many more. Kat mainly covers arts and entertainment, but she also shares her personal stories. In 2020, Kat was told after years of trying and two IVF rounds that it was unlikely she'd ever have a biological child of her own. That experience taught her that there were many losses and grief like this that just weren't talked about. Kat's new book, No One Talks About This Stuff, is an anthology of writers on their experience of infertility, baby loss and almost motherhood. Kat's currently crowdfunding for her book and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. I'm so excited to have Kat on the show today as her work demonstrates that sharing our personal stories can help others feel less alone. In a post about Kat's book, No One Talks About This Stuff, she writes, I had no clear path to go down now that motherhood was cut off to me. But I found comfort of a sort in learning about disenfranchised grief, grief that isn't recognised by wider society. I found comfort in the stories of others, listening to other people's darkest moments and to know that they still somehow found the courage to keep going, anchored me at a time when I worried that if I didn't pay close enough attention, I would float away. Welcome, Cat. Thank you so much for having me. I feel like Michael Aspel's just turned up at my house with a big This Is Your Life book. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. How are you doing today? Oh, extremely well. Um, I've got daffodils in the kitchen. The weekend was so sunny that I feel like all my batteries have been topped up and it feels as though, fingers crossed, spring is on the horizon, which is hugely welcome after this ghastly winter. 
Yes, I agree. Give me that vitamin D. Um, and then how's all your, <laughs> how's your book fundraising going um, on Unbound? It's going well, really well. We launched in the middle of December and uh, last week we were at 55%. But I had this extraordinary meeting with somebody on Friday who then just said, oh, well, it really annoys me when people can't achieve what they want to just because something's got in the way. So I'd like to pledge £4,000 to your book. So it hasn't gone on yet. I am assured it wasn't just like a horrible practical joke, but by the time that that's gone through, that'll mean that I only have about 4,000 quid left to raise, which is still a, like a ridiculous amount of money, considering that when I've done fundraising before, it's been for like running stuff and been at most two and a half, three grand. But it just feels so exciting because it is a big community effort and everybody who has been pledging and, you know, pledging to rewards and that sort of thing to make this book happen are people who, if they haven't experienced infertility or miscarriage or loss, know somebody who has. Because that's the thing is it's not just the people going through these really awful, quite life, literally life-changing experiences who are affected. It's their colleagues, it's their families, it's everybody who knows them. So I've been it sounds awfully like trite to say, but ludicrously moved by the messages that I've got and people's reasons for pledging to make the book happen. That's incredible. Um, and do people, have people already written the essays for the book or is it a mix or how does it work on that side of things when you're doing this with Unbound? So they haven't written the essays yet because it would all mightily suck if they'd written these beautiful pieces. I'd lovingly edited them and then we were like, oh, well, this book is now never going to happen. Because the thing is, is people pledge money towards the book and in return they get uh, a reward. So it might be a book, a signed book. Um, we've also got a lovely level where people can uh, remember a lost child. It may be one who died at birth or through miscarriage or who they never met, they never got to give birth to or, or meet, um, but they still very much exist. But the writers that we have so far, we've only uh, we've only sort of recruited, if you like, about nine out of the 15, possibly 20 now writers that we're going to have. Because when we launched the book, I very much knew that there were going to be stories that I didn't even know about and it, it, intersections and congruencies around infertility and cultural uh, cultural issues and just all sorts of different things um, that, you know, a, a bit of a Google and, you know, having seen people writing or talking about this, um, I just wouldn't have known they existed. So a big thing for me is once we get towards the towards the, the big green line of the fundraising is to open it up for public submissions um, so that people can tell their stories and so that we can be properly representative because, I mean, it's impossible to think that we'll be able to cover the whole sum of experience of baby loss and almost motherhood in British society in the space of 15, 20 pieces. But I want to get as flipping close to it as possible. Yeah. And I'm sure how you got there will come up when we get onto your time of pretending to be totally fine. But I think it's just incredible <laughs> that I think, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's obviously you're, you're saying this, these stories need to be heard. And when you talk about disenfranchised grief and how society doesn't acknowledge it, I, I think it's just stunning to acknowledge it with stories. But then also, as you said, people can acknowledge it with um, naming naming children in, their, in, in, the, in the book as well. So I just think that's really incredible and very helpful for people as well. Thank you. I mean, it is a 
a horrible community. And there's a brilliant Instagram account called, I think, the world's uh, the worst girl gang ever. And, uh, you know, they say it's it's part of a club that nobody would want to belong to, uh, which is completely spot on. Um, but again, it's just, it's not just important, I think, for the writers to be able to tell their stories, because again, something that is quite important for me when choosing the writers is making sure, like you have done with your podcast, actually, is making sure that not necessarily that people are okay with what has happened, but that they have processed that grief to a certain extent and hopefully have some distance from it. Um, because otherwise, I think that can be really, really difficult for people. But also, I want this book to be a support group for people who are going through all this stuff now, because there just isn't anything out there. There are really wonderful charities who can help you with miscarriage and baby loss and everything. But in terms of just a group that you can turn to, to listen to other people telling their stories, just not. And something that I've been told over the years, uh, and particularly since I gave up drinking, was to listen to the similarities and not the differences. And I think that's where the importance of story comes in, because even if your experience doesn't match up perfectly, or even at all, there will always be something that you can draw from. And that is just hugely, hugely important to help people feel less alone, particularly because so many of the bookshelves dealing with infertility or loss or any of the myriad experiences, including physical illnesses um, that comes th- that comes through all this almost motherhood, a lot of them are either very scientific and sort of deal with the everyday how-tos, or they might just deal with one person's story. And very often that story will end with a baby at the end and the sort of takeaway will be, and everything was fine then because I had a baby, la 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 la. Whereas obviously it isn't because that's just the beginning of another story altogether. And again, another fabulous Instagram community and podcast, uh, Trying Years, deals with the difficulties of becoming pregnant and having a baby after you've experienced infertility, whether that might be through, you know, years of endometriosis or or just unexplained infertility or recurrent miscarriage, because, you know, there's still an awful lot of mixed feelings that come along with that. Yes, and you're so right about the stories and finding the similarities rather than the differences, because I haven't experienced um, anything related to miscarriage or um, infertility. However, what I have experienced is feeling grief, but feeling that what I feeling stigmatized with it or that I shouldn't be feeling how I feel and a shame around how I feel. And there is something I think very similar with um, suicide grief or miscarriages and all these things that, as you say, don't quite fit into societal narratives or people don't want to talk about them. And so I don't know what the experience is like, but I certainly know what it's like to feel silenced and shamed by that experience and to not feel legitimate as well in what you're experiencing. Um, so that was certainly something I found relatable, um, with these stories as well. It's horrible though. I mean, that's, that's again, such a ridiculous thing to say that something is, is just horrible, but it is because whether it is that society is simply not set up for people that don't fit the cookie cutter mold, or just that people don't want to acknowledge that not everything is rosy, which I think to be honest in the world that we live in now is impossible not to see and not to witness. But 
part of the reason I wanted to make this book was because I knew that my experience, which has never involved pregnancy and therefore I, and I've never had miscarriage or baby loss or any of these, you know, equally just dreadful, dreadful experiences. But I knew that I felt so incredibly isolated and so jagged with grief um, to the extent that, you know, after my second round of IVF failed, I tweeted about it, basically just going, it's very unlikely I'm going to have kids. I don't know what to do. I feel so sad and so alone. And I would just be grateful for any kind words that anybody's had because you know, which on Twitter, which is the journalist's professional platform, if you like, is is probably a lot of people would see as quite a strange thing to do. But that's the thing about grief and particularly grief that doesn't have a program, if you like. And I've just been reading two extraordinary books about death, um, The Red of My Blood by Clover Stroud, which is amazing on the emotions and feelings, and All the Living and the Dead by Hayley Campbell, which is a series of incredible portraits um, in which she goes and works with people who work throughout the death industry, the people who look after us after we've died, if you like. And it just sort of, again, emphasises the fact that since the Victorian period, which had these nice, not nice, but sort of this understandable process of what happens after death, what happens in order to grieve. You wear your widow's weeds, you wear black, you might then progress to an armband, you wouldn't go out into society for a certain amount of time. But there simply is not that now. And so unless you want to accept, you know, endless shepherd's pies or walk around going, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, uh, or, you know, just be just have your community just talk about how brave you are all the time. Like, what do you do? What do you do with those feelings? And it's extraordinarily hard, which is again, why I think podcasts like yours are so important, but also as much as people, you know, do like to understandably vilify social media for a lot of times, there are communities throughout Instagram, Facebook, um, that are incredibly valuable for people when they are in those early moments of complete loss and just don't know where to turn, partly because it's easier, if you like, to to vent, to be your true self to a group of strangers than it might be to somebody that you know quite well, who perhaps you don't want to upset or you're not sure how much they can take. But you can the full force of all of these feelings can go out there. Um, and that's brilliant on the one hand, but also it's it's really, really quite upsetting that there still isn't anything structural in much of society to honour different kinds of grief. Yes, I completely agree. And I've certainly pledged and we will, and I'm sure plenty, plenty more will. Oh, thank you so much. How <laughs> um, amazing. Because yeah, as, as I said, it's that, um, I think, yeah, that dif- disenfranchised grief that you talk about and not feeling like how you feel is quite right. Um, but should we get into your life altering experience that changed you? Um, yes. Right. Oh, what a surprise for everybody that it's basically not about children. <laughs> um, so tell us, tell us what it is about. So my totally fine experience was essentially the 20, 25 years of battling my brain, feeling like a defective, lesser than human being who needed to try 20 times as hard as everybody else to pass as human until in 2020, I was diagnosed with combined type ADHD, um, 
which thanks to a lot of pieces in the press, not all of which have been written by me, hooray, um, has been showing that actually there is a huge and very delayed series of diagnosis in adult women, particularly who have historically been missed due to criteria for diagnosing ADHD being based around quite a lot of 1970s studies involving white men and boys. Um, And we now know that ADHD in women can present in very different ways, partly due to physiognomy and and how the body is made, but also due to societal pressures. So obviously women, particularly when I was growing up in the 90s, even though there was the Ladette culture, that was very much, I think, a gaslighting image because it was still, you know, girls and women should still be polite, should still be the oil that greases social niceties, should still take on the burden of care, uh, should still make everything nice in the home and that sort of thing. So the hyperactivity, (coughs) pardon me, that characterizes ADHD and certainly characterizes a large portion of my ADHD can very often manifest in women as racing thoughts, as daydreaming, as um, fiddling in very, very small movements with your hands. So I have a couple of, I don't know if ticks is the right word, but just a couple of habits. So I'm very often tracing the shape of a heart on my thumbnail which is a tiny, very, very small movement, but it just means that I'm always, always physically moving, even if I'm in a meeting or a presentation or having to otherwise you know, be a functional grown-up in society. Um, and also sometimes, and I try and keep this to when I'm outside and on my own, uh, just because people find it a bit weird, but if I have suddenly a build-up of emotion or thinking about something, that it will just come out in a sentence. It won't be like a sort of random sentence, but it might almost be as though I'm speaking to the person that I'm having this conversation with in my head or something. And so that's another quite useful way of sort of, of getting it out. Should we go back to the realisation and the diagnosis? Yes, am I right thank in you. Thinking, I just realised I'd been monologuing. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that it was actually a Twitter thread that set off the series of events that led the, to the diagnosis? I think the diagnosis had been such a long time in coming because over the years I'd been treated for, if not diagnosed with depression, anxiety, insomnia. Um, I had uh, putty mal epilepsy as a child, which we now know to be one of the biggest comorbidities. That's That sort of means crossover, if you like, with ADHD. And I had... Uh, binge eating disorder as well, which again was only diagnosed when I was an adult because people just didn't really know it existed. They just knew about bulimia and anorexia and didn't know about binge eating, which is another huge thing uh, for people with ADHD. And the comedian Shaparat Kosandi was talking about that on Twitter recently in terms of her own diagnosis. But after I had this conversation Uh, with a consultant during the first lockdown about not being able to have children, biological children ever. Um, My husband and I started looking into adoption. We went to lots of the open evenings on Zoom. Um, I'd been listening to lots of amazing podcasts, particularly Some Families, which is aimed at an LGBTQIA plus audience. But I really felt a fit with that because it felt in the very sort of non-traditional sense of building a family. Um, And the more that I went to these amazing meetings and listen to these incredible families and parents from all sorts of different backgrounds and makeups and setups, the more I realized that this wasn't something that we could pursue until 
I'd managed to sort out my own mental health. Um, and I mean, that that sounds like something that I just need to go to the shop for and buy a carton of milk and then it'll be done. Whereas in realistically, this had been something that I'd been working on for years. Um, so we very sadly said goodbye uh, to the idea of adopting, which when you are infertile is very much, oh, why don't you just adopt that people throw at you, which is massively unhelpful. In that spring, the April, uh, somebody that I follow that always retweets amazing stuff retweeted uh, a message from an ADHD coach in Cambridge saying people who were diagnosed with ADHD as adults, what was the thing that sort of made you realise? And I clicked into the thread because it sounded really interesting. And it was just like looking into a mirror or like a traveling salesman who pulled open his coat and suddenly in all the pockets were just things that I had experienced or got used to, uh, like to pull something out at random from one of these pockets. In my second year of university, I lost seven sets of keys, one of which I literally just threw away with the used shopping bags. I could not keep a hold of my things, which made me feel so useless and awful. Um, I was pretty much immune to caffeine. If I got bored, I'd drink like eight or nine cups of coffee a day, which, you know, let me tell you, is not good for your health at all. And uh, again, all these overlapping mental health problems um, and also just this ongoing feeling of of worthlessness, unless I was completely fixated on something, in which case I could just be brilliant. And when I used to work in a newsroom, it was like my absolute dream because it would be short bursts of really, really intense work chasing a massive high, which might be, you know, viewing figures on a piece, or it might be you know, getting a piece in the paper or something like that, or just getting to something amazing before other people did. Um, but then if I didn't have that, I would be exhausted. And certainly for like the two, three years before I got my diagnosis, I would be coming home at the end of the working day and just going straight to bed for two to three hours because I was just exhausted. Um, I was really worried that I might be I might have chronic fatigue or or ME or something like that um, because I just couldn't explain this fatigue. So when I sort of read through this Twitter thread with all these, not not symptoms necessarily, but just all these different experiences that other people had had, and again, it was just like, oh, oh, but is that not normal? Is that not normal? Oh, holy sh- is that is that not normal? Oh yeah, my parents did always say that I was too sensitive as a teenager. Like, and I, you know, I, I just cry very, very easily. Like, it's, oh, okay, well, that's really interesting. And so then I just, you know, hopped onto Google and found every flipping article that I could find about adult ADHD diagnosis um, and discovering that it was only really since about 2013, when these diagnostic criteria changed, particularly among women, that a lot of people were becoming diagnosed. Um, And I spoke to people at uh, charities like the ADHD Foundation and discovered that, you know, adult ADHD diagnosis in Britain, full stop, has only really been happening since the early 2000s. Um, And people that I knew were all suddenly, you know, coming out of the woodwork with these diagnoses. But interestingly, for people that I had been in touch with as a child, in fact, the only people really that I was still in contact with from a child, apart from maybe one friend, it turns out that despite all the house moves and geographical moves and all that sort of thing, and, you know, not really seeing each other at all, we'd kept in touch 
and we all had ADHD. So it was almost as though there was that sort of like weird common telepathic thread sort of going on. And it's just been fascinating. Well, my limited understanding of ADHD and what I'm reading about it, and it is becoming talked about a bit more and more, and I am learning as as we go. Um, but I think what one of the things that makes it so challenging is that the experiences you have, to use your your words, with ADHD are much are very much in conflict with how one, particularly women, are meant to exist in society. So some people interpret things as laziness or you said worthlessness and it kind of fueled a lot of your mental health issues um first of all is that fair to say and 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 to to tell me what you think about that but also if that is the case what was it like to come across something and be like oh it's not what I thought it was like I you know what is that like that kind of everything making sense and looking back at all your experiences well I think first of all the ADHD, what was interesting to discover was that the ADHD didn't necessarily fuel my mental health problems. It was, if you like, the umbrella cause. It was it was the big boss. It was, you know, the end level thing. And discovering that if I treated the big boss with, well, in my case, certainly medication has helped me no end, that everything else would not necessarily go away, but become infinitely more manageable was just extraordinary. Because the guilt that I felt from essentially carrying around a shopping list of mental health conditions, which made me feel incredibly greedy and also maybe like, was I making them up for attention? You know, I didn't think so. But, you know, there's always that at the back of your head. Um, And particularly when depression is one of them, because goodness knows depression likes to tell us how dreadful we are all the time. As to whether that is a common thing in women, that sort of worthlessness, I think the number of people that I've spoken to whose experiences completely vary and differ suggests that that is really up to the individual. Like it really is a, a horribly individual condition, if you like. So um, I interviewed, uh, I mean, to call her an influencer is wildly negating it, but the sort of the beauty legend that is Carolyn Hirons uh, for a piece that I wrote for the Telegraph on ADHD diagnosis and October 2020, because again, one of the things that I do to help me process things is write about them and and speak to people about them. And she was diagnosed as many adult women are when her children were diagnosed. And um, the doctor asked her, you know, did you notice, were there any problems? And she was just like, no, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've obviously got so many coping strategies and mechanisms in place that it's genuinely just never been a problem for me. And in fact, there's a a wonderful statistic um, which says that, I mean, obviously, who's to know for sure? Nobody's gone around and polled every entrepreneur in the world, but that around 30% of entrepreneurs have ADHD because your brain works in a in a very different way to somebody that doesn't have ADHD in the same way that, you know, somebody without dyslexia will, their brain will work in a different way to somebody with dyslexia or everybody's brain is just, you know, unique to them but that they will be able to tackle problems in a particular way and, you know, really focus on something if it interests them. Um, uh, A book that came out a couple of years ago, which I still think is, you know, a must read for any adult woman um, being diagnosed with ADHD or whose children are is Better Late Than Never by Emma Mahoney. And she was a journalist at the Times for years, um, but always really 
she sort of realized in her career that she'd always really struggled in uh, more corporate environments. And she ended up uh, leaving and changing career to become a teacher. Uh, but again, it was just fascinating talking to her about the different ways that your brain can lie to you. But then also once you're sort of on the same path, on the right path, if you like, for your brain, and you get some kind of user manual that isn't just the default one that everybody gets, it's just amazing, not just what you can do, but how you can feel about yourself and your life. Like rather than feeling like you're constantly dragging a heavy weight behind you and that heavy weight is you, you're just like, oh, I can, it's like I can just walk around without pain anymore. I think one division that I do just want to flag is that getting that diagnosis is not, like I mentioned earlier, a happy ever after, because a lot of my friends have experienced real grief for the life that they could have had if they had known earlier. And I think, again, it's amazing that people manage to achieve anything at all, let alone, in some cases, quite a lot of success with undiagnosed ADHD because people with undiagnosed ADHD are nine times more likely to end up in prison, having car crashes, you know, ending ending relationships and indulging in very dangerous behavior purely for dopamine seeking. So, you know, I hope that, I basically just really hope that things get better for future generations. Gosh, I certainly, um, yes, that idea of grieving for the life you could have had if you'd have known earlier sounds incredibly painful. I think there's, you're right. I, I have to stop going, yeah, no, but it's fine. Which ironically, of course, is perfect for, for our conversation because it's not fine. And I think if I stop and think for long enough, I feel incredibly sad for what I experienced, but also what my family experienced, what my friends did. I found keeping friendships incredibly difficult, partly because I couldn't really truly be honest with people because I was having to put up a facade all the time, that facade being a capable human being, but also again, being very emotionally erratic, very all over the place and finding a lot of very, very unhealthy ways to deal with that. Um, I self-harmed as a teenager. Uh, I drank a lot. Um, I really, really enjoyed drugs when I was at university, except when I thought that I was probably going to die when I was coming up. Um, and I had obviously an incredibly, incredibly problematic relationship with food. And all of these things were done with such a tightly wound sense of control that obviously every now and then the elastic band would ping off and I would just explode into chaos which is, yeah, which is horrific. But something that does really help me and I think has had a really lasting effect on the things that I do is writing about them and speaking about them. And this didn't start with ADHD or infertility or anything like that. And really compared to like, you know, I don't know, going on the Today programme to talk about neighbours or writing about telly or something like that. Those pieces make up a very small amount of, you know, my work. But uh, about 10 years ago, uh, a school friend of mine who I wasn't in touch with, but remembered and thought very, very fondly of, uh, killed herself. And I went to the funeral 
along with lots of people from my school and just thinking again, how isolating and how terrifying these feelings and these experiences are when you have nowhere to talk about them and when you see nobody talking about them. And so I wrote, I wrote a piece about the experience of going to her funeral and uh, my own experience of depression. And then I wrote a couple more pieces in like uh, a newspaper and, and a magazine and that sort of thing. And then obviously not from me, but I mean, Stephen Fry had sort of really started this whole thing talking about depression and that sort of experience. It's sort of not necessarily snowballed, but more people are aware of it now and are aware that it's not something to be shameful about, even though obviously it's very easy to say that, but our brains are very good at making us hide things because oh, that's okay for other people. Other people are allowed to feel these things. You, on the other hand, are not, and you are too worthless to deserve these things or sympathy or empathy. But again, it's just, it's so important to talk about these things and to shine a light on them because that is how stigma withers and dies. And that is how people can feel not just less alone, but heard. And that is utterly, utterly important because, you know, people feeling heard and understood is a really, really, really crucial ingredient to improving mental health. Absolutely. And I want to get on to um, how you pretended to be fine and masked it. But one question popped into my mind earlier around the diagnosis, because you've talked about um, some essential superpowers that ADHD might give someone. So you talked about entrepreneurs and you yourself, the the newsroom um, atmosphere. Was there a part of you when you got the diagnosis and you mentioned you went on medication that, that feared losing some of those superpowers that potentially it was giving you? Weirdly enough, no. I think because I wasn't so old, obviously, and obviously anybody listening in their 60s or 70s will be like, yeah, all right, grasshopper, shut up. I was about 37, 38 when I got the diagnosis and I had been really, really struggling with a lot of things happening all at once like through most of my 30s. I mean, obviously we're talking about like one issue here, but as everybody knows, life is not a single issue problem. And you might be dealing with one health issue and then having, you know, 900 other things going on in the background. So whilst I was, you know, sort of chaosing my way through my thirties and, you know, trying to conceive and having lots of mixed feelings about conception, because obviously uh, I was brought up through school to think of, you know, pregnancy too early as being awful and then by the Daily Mail as pregnancy too late to be thoughtless and, you know, inconsiderate and all those sort of things. Like, obviously, women can never do anything right is the takeaway there. But then I was also, you know, being made redundant uh, from from work, uh, struggling to sort of find work that I connected with and could really, you know, do my best at, but also, you know, really trying hard to sort of make all that happen. Um, I was really throwing myself into running. And then a few years later, uh, when I sort of went to physios and then to the hospital to sort of work out why I was limping and had so much pain in my hip, it turned out that a problem that I'd been born with, so bilateral hip dysplasia or shallow hip sockets, meant that um, my left hip was wearing away to the extent that I really needed a replacement operation fairly soon. 
Uh, so I'm on the waiting list for that. And then the right one will be along at some point. And also because I, because I'd given up drinking, but then the pandemic happened, which is almost an afterthought and also ridiculous because obviously the pandemic is such a huge cloying gray cloud over all our lives. Um, but I realized I was really struggling to sort of find coping mechanisms to replace alcohol with that weren't food or just, you know, a nice bath filled with Epsom salts to sort of soothe my hip. Um, and all the while just sort of not necessarily covering everything up, but, you know, wanting to sort of try and, and do anything to sort of feel as though I was of use and that I was okay and that I was doing something that mattered even while it felt like everybody around me was, you know, writing multiple brilliant books, doing really important things, achieving wonderful career goals and, you know, lovely family milestones and all that sort of stuff. And, um, uh, but the thing that I always try and come back to with varying degrees of success is comparison as the thief of joy. But goodness me, it did feel as though I was at times surrounded by magpies that were just going, no, can't have that, can't have that, can't have that, because you're not doing as well as them. Yeah, the pandemic um, and lockdowns were, yeah, I think but most so many people lost a lot of their coping mechanisms. And that's why there was so much, like there was, it was almost like, it was almost jovial, like how much, like the way conversations around drinking were happening in, in, the, in the media and stuff like that. But it was actually very serious and concerning that people were turning to that, I think. Um, and yeah, everyone was sitting at home and like watching what everyone else was doing. And, and, and it was, I think, I think, I certainly was feeling, yeah, in comparison to others, worthless, particularly during that time. Um, so I think, yeah, so it was really hard. Um, but with with the, so so did you quit drinking before or after the diagnosis? And 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 also, I'd love to hear more about, yeah, the the coping mechanism you have used and how you have pretended uh, all has been fine. And, and and I know that people talk about masking a lot. Um, people with experience of ADHD. So could you tell me a bit about that as well? Yeah. I'm also so sorry uh, for when I go off on tangents. Um, I'm really bad at having to keep a track of multiple questions. So if I ever do go oh, off track, sorry, just ask me one a, question at a oh, time. I'll do one, I'll do <laughs> no, one question fine. at a time. I was, because uh, uh, I was like trying to not go down a route of, because we could talk about the pandemic for the next hour or so and the impact that's had. So I was trying to stick to, so um, I too was just, uh, interested in many things of what you've said um but the first question I asked was uh you mentioned quitting drinking did that come before or after the ADHD diagnosis the the I quit drinking in August 2019 and there was no big rock bottom although goodness knows there had been a few near misses to put it mildly over the years like through my 20s 30s teens you know and a lot of people will be like oh yeah but me too and you know that's that's, that's fine that that's was. no problem yeah. yeah exactly but i so i when i gave up drinking it was about 2 3 months after my second round of ivf had failed and also uh, a really dear friend had died um a month or two previous prior to that and I caught myself one night, uh, I was going to the theatre with friends and I went to a wine bar beforehand, um, drinking on my own in a sort of celebratory, I'm going to the theatre, this will all be exciting. But also my friend was supposed to be there. She had wanted to come to this play, 
that's really, I can't believe that she's not there. And I basically used that evening as an excuse to go and be exuberant and over the top and have interval drinks and then go for dinner afterwards and drinks beforehand. And I dragged my husband along with me and he just, you know, wasn't really up for it. And I was just like, but I want to be up for it. I want to have these feelings. I want to change the way that I feel. And I woke up the next morning and I was just like, using your friend to justify wanting to go and change the way that you feel with lots of fairly mediocre booze is, no, let's let's just not do that. And I stopped drinking and I haven't drunk alcohol since then. And it's not really for me necessarily about the alcohol as a thing, because as I've shown throughout lockdown and certainly the last few months, I'm perfectly able to treat coffee, for example, as an addictive drug and Ben and Jerry's and chocolate and just sort of go rah, 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 eat all these things to change the way that I feel, to make me feel comforted, reassured, or just less bored. And that is really something that I've been trying to put off dealing with since I gave up drinking because I was like, oh, I've given up alcohol. You know, that's enough for the time being. That's enough to be getting on with. But interestingly, like addictive behavior and certainly not like not necessarily addiction in the sort of way that we think of it like oh i've suddenly metamorphosed into a middle-aged man with a big red nose drinking meths on a park bench sort of thing but like compulsive drinking when you do drink so i was always really impressed slash disappointed by people who'd be like i just don't really feel like it no thanks or i'm just gonna have one and actually meant they were going to have one because i was like but where's the hijinks where's the spontaneity we're going to go to lots of bars we'll probably end up at karaoke we're gonna like dance through the city and the city has hours and it'll be wonderful uh, until you wake up the next morning feeling like your brain is just filled with hot stale milk or something like that um but yeah, ad- addictive behavior in that way, it turns out, is another comorbidity with undiagnosed ADHD, um, partly because of the thrill-seeking element, partly because of dopamine stim- uh, stimulation and, and wanting to stimulate like pleasure, if you like. Um, there are thoughts as well that ADHD or people with ADHD sort of have less dopamine naturally, and so they need to sort of go and punch bad things or not bad things in themselves, but things that if you use too much of them can be a problem. Um, And yeah, I just basically came to the conclusion that I was never going to be able to come up with a convincing answer to the equation that I really wanted solved, which is how do I just drink like a normal person? Um, And particularly, again, the older that I got, the more my body was like, mate, you are so not 22 anymore. You know, I'm no, this is just not, this is not a good time. And honestly, since then, I haven't missed alcohol. I haven't thought about wanting to drink in any meaningful way. Only if, for example, somebody's by a fire cradling a ginormous glass with about two inches of red wine in it. In that case, I'm like, oh, I, I do quite miss that. But it, for me, is so much about trying to figure out answers towards curing or if not curing then sort of settling a problem inside because again through lockdown loads of people commented that they were you know eating really badly 
comfort eating, if you like, on an epic scale, like drinking more than they ordinarily would. And again, that's not necessarily because these things are delicious, even though they are. It's because they are giving you something that is providing a solution to what you're going through at the moment, which is a flipping global pandemic and lockdown. And, you know, we as a society don't really have any obvious answers to that. Uh, It might be go and invest millions of pounds in this particular gym program or buy these sorts of yoga pants or something. But, you know, there are just no easy answers beyond drinking coffee, you know, treats really. And yeah. we can't just be treat based. Yes, there's that there's that great article about treat treat brain in the Financial Times and how um yeah, during lockdowns we were all fueling our treat brain, whether that was through shopping or drinking or um yeah, eating eating junk food. I mean it's interesting because I certainly relate in the first lockdown for sure, drinking every night, like whiskey, you know, and then um uh yeah, like eating really badly and, and all that kind of stuff. Um and that was that was what everyone was it felt like everyone was doing these things to cope but it sounds like your existence in the world was 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 almost you already had implemented these sorts of coping mechanisms in your life does that does that make sense that we were all yeah. kind of that that we were all mass experiencing during the lockdown oh i mean don't get me wrong i still impulse purchased the world's crappiest exercise bike uh, I tried to use it once and then was just like, no, this is this is just never going to work. Um, impulse buying and shopping, again, big untreated ADHD coping mechanisms. Um, Which is related yeah, to dopamine, I've, I've, isn't it? Sorry, just shop, shopping and yes, dopamine. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. Don't, don't, honestly, I had a huge collection of Byredo candles because every time that anything remotely good happened career-wise, I'd be like, must go and spend 50 quid on a candle to celebrate. Um, but... Uh, the, oh, hang on, so hang on, we were in lockdown, coping mechanisms. Yeah. Yes, I was asking about yeah, so, experience coping mechanisms. So yeah. one big coping mechanism, if you like, or coping strategy is obviously being outside in nature, which is really flipping hard when you are allowed one hour's exercise a day. And probably if you live in London, I live in zone three, most of that hour is going to be taken up with getting to the lovely green area and that sort of thing. Um But something I found immeasurably helpful um, during that time, and which I have done generally, is going out into my little courtyardy postage stamp of a garden and, you know, just cutting down ivy or, you know, trimming things or if stuff was growing, sort of tying it up to a trellis so that it could sort of follow those lines. And I was doing that listening to endless episodes of ADHD podcasts and books and that sort of thing, because something that I found incredibly sad was, again, over the last few years, uh, my ability to read, to focus on reading had just disappeared, which is also very problematic because I write about books quite a lot as an arts journalist. So again, just being able to have something physical that I was doing whilst I was listening to something else was really helpful because then the gardening moved on to nesting and something that I found, again, found really interesting in retrospect is I really, really got on board with the whole Marie Kondo way of folding socks and storing clothes vertically when her book sort of went mega years ago. Um, and I remember there were lots of quite trolly articles saying, she wants you to throw out all your stuff. And it's like, oh, 
no, categorically not. She just wants you to be surrounded by stuff that is useful and well stored and stuff that you like. And actually, again, during lockdown and after diagnosis, particularly, I really found it incredibly therapeutic and useful to make my home as clear of clutter, as thoughtful and as tidy as possible, because otherwise my brain would just bounce off everything that shouldn't be there in inverted commas, like a ping pong ball. Um, And so actually that made a real difference to how I felt. And also just setting, setting up various systems at home in terms of how I stored clothes or things or just where where things were kept and how cupboards were done and actually when when I sort of made this kitchen um, I got rid of most of the cupboards and just had drawers and actually again that's a fantastic ADHD coping strategy because if you can't see stuff we just forget it's there I think it's called object permanence in the same way that you might end up surrounded by piles of clutter because you just don't really see it anymore whereas having a drawer um, like with your socks or clothes or tops or anything where everything is just sort of stored vertically and you can see what's there at a glance. It just means that, you know, food isn't going to go off endlessly and you're just going to have more of an idea of what's happening. And those things have just been so useful for for giving me sort of like a nice starting point, if you like, for my day and just feelings in general. Yes, I, I, I do believe in that. Yeah, that sort of outer order in a calm and the impact of your environment and how that can shape your mental well-being for sure. Um, and so would you say that you've come out the other side and it's something that's, you know, with, with, with the ADHD, is life more manageable for you now? I think Getting an ADHD diagnosis is like going into a very bright and sparkly tunnel because you were so excited to be there and you're just sort of waving at everybody as you go past. Like you're so exhilarated when your doctor is like, oh yes, you're in the 94th percentile. You've definitely got ADHD because it's like, I know I've got the answer. I know where I am. But then it turns out that the tunnel is really bloody long and you know where you are, but you're also just there for a very long time because it's not as simple as just getting a magic pill and then your brain sort of changes. Like people's brains, again, respond to medicine in different way, different ways. And again, because even though I was, uh, I'd been sober for a, over a year by that point, um, because I'd obviously been a self-confessed person who had problems drinking, um, I needed to go through uh, quite a lot of different tests before I could go on stimulant medication because obviously even though a stimulant will cancel out the over hyperactivity in an ADHD person's brain, there's still the potential for, you know, misuse or addiction there. Um, And so I was in this tunnel for such a long time because I'd try these different tablets. And again, because the NHS waiting list was huge, I used uh, my tax money to go private. And so that did mean that I got my diagnosis quickly, but it also meant that every month or so um, I'd have, I'd be coughing up 200 quid for my consultation with my doctor and then more for the medication privately. And I'm actually about to catch up with him next week. And I think, fingers crossed, we have finally found a combination of three pills, so much the magic pill, uh, across different times of the day and treating different areas of the brain that work. And it's just amazing because again, it's that feeling that of 
having loads of tabs open in a browser and then just being able to close them all and just deal with one. And I like, I don't, I don't binge anymore on food. Um, I've obviously had to relearn what comfort eating is and to see the difference between that. But that's been something that I've been working on for like the best part of seven years after my, after my treatment. Um, I sleep really well. If I'm woken up in the night now, it's not because of anxiety or panic or because, you know, the alcohol's worked its way through. It's because one of my sodding cats is fighting with the other one or the dog's having a panic attack at lightning or something like that. It's not because of something that's happening in my brain or my body, which is just, again, I don't realise how amazing and how life-changing these things are until I actually talk to you about them now or or write them down. And again, just not having those depressive thoughts, not feeling so anxious. I mean, I, I do have like propanolol beta blockers that I take sometimes if I am, you know, if my heart rate's going or if I am sort of just feeling like randomly anxious, but that really is few and far between now. And it's incredible. And it's not like I feel normal because fuck me, I've no idea what normal feels like. Certainly not to me. But I feel like I can concentrate on a task. I feel like I can focus. And also this year, I've completely ripped up the way that I work. I'm not doing full-time contracts. I'm not doing nine to fives. I'm doing freelance jobs and freelance writing, putting this book together, but also so that during the day, um, I can go and do exercise outdoors. I can go and get the support that I need. I can go and do different treatments and that sort of thing um and you know look after my hip and all that sort of stuff and go and get outside into a flipping park um and that feels like a revolution in itself to me because I never thought that I was worth putting the effort into and when we talk about masking that just means years of trying to be like everybody else but failing not least because of what was in my brain but because I'm a redhead and I'm six foot one so I don't look like a model, which would probably be the only way that that would be acceptable. And I have a voice like somebody who's fallen out of Downton Abbey. And it's just, yeah, it was always a complete fail from the start to try and be like everybody else. But I think what is lovely now, particularly about having this diagnosis, is having the confidence to let my, you know, ADHD freak, you know, infertility flag fly and go, you know what? yeah, this is me and it's not just me, but I'm happy to talk about it. And if that helps somebody who doesn't feel comfortable talking about it, then bloody hell, I'm definitely going to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's you sharing your stories is, is so helpful to people. And uh, we will certainly put in the show notes, some relevant links if anyone's hearing and relating to what you're saying and, and, and wanting to find out some more about ADHD. So thank you for sharing that. Final, final question is around pretending we're fine is something we do, I think, on a daily basis. Is there a small way that you've done that recently? I did have something else in mind, but I think the ironic and absolutely inevitable answer is that when I got on the podcast call with you and you asked how I was doing this week, I was like, oh, fine. Yeah, absolutely fine. And I was just like, oh, Catherine, you absolute imbecile. You were just underlining the reason for the existence of this podcast. Um, I've said I've been fine 
a lot over the last few years because it's a shorthand. It's It sort of means, well, you know, things aren't great, but not to the extent that I'm going to take up our time, our mutual time, by talking to you about them at any great length. And I think one of the lasting effects of masking, of hiding how my brain was and how I felt and what I was trying to be and and do and everything over the years is that I'm very, very bad at accepting help or or asking for help unless it's somebody that I can control. Sorry, that sounds really manipulative. I mean like a paid therapist or a paid professional. If it is from one of my friends, um, I find that really, really difficult because I just feel as though if I were to say the truth more often, that it would be as though like one of the monsters from Stranger Things had just suddenly jumped out in the middle of the coffee shop and disturbed our nice civilised peace. But also I think because I'm probably doing my friends a huge disservice and I am thinking that they don't want to help. And I had lunch with a friend recently who did me a, a huge, huge service and a huge kindness, which obviously immediately made me feel incredibly uncomfortable internally because I was just like, I don't know how to do this. What? And they were just like, do you know what? Sometimes kindness begets kindness and it's your turn now. And that's not to say that I walk around my life, you know, like flipping Mother Teresa, just being kind to everybody and befriending small children and animals and that sort of thing. But it was really, really lovely. And it did it did make me think very carefully about the scattergun approach that certainly I have gone about my friendships with, which is not quite distributing largesse, but sort of being the one who will offer help or do something practical or something and being very bad at accepting that and also letting people offer that. And that is really, I think, not necessarily my goal for this year, but just something that I'm really keeping in mind and thinking about very carefully because some people might say that they're fine and really, you know, actually underneath need help. And I say I'm fine. And really what that means is that I'm busy trying to tinker under the engine so that I can fix myself before telling somebody else what's really going on. And, you know, that's not honest or or necessarily kind to anybody else. So not necessarily leaning on people more, but treating them as human beings rather than vases that might smash if I say anything other than fine. Well, that's a... um thoughtful note to end on for all of us because we all could learn something about responding not with I'm fine I'm fine (laughs) um so thank you thank you it was was great to talk today um and appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much I think your as I've said you know your work these conversations they really really help people so thank you thank you so much Uh, it's not to say that everybody needs to go and you know talk about the awful things that are going on in their lives to everybody and in fact there are loads of things that I would never dream of talking about it about at all even though (laughs) they seem completely inconceivable but yeah it really it really does help and particularly if you are somebody that keeps things secret whether through an eating disorder or another mental health problem just finding somewhere to talk about it 
in whatever whatever that may look like, whatever form that might take. I think that is incredibly important. And I hope that if you're listening now thinking that's me, I really hope that you find it. And if not, please DM me on Twitter or Instagram or drop me an email and I'll be very happy to listen or hopefully point you in a direction. Thanks. Thanks so much, Kat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Totally Fine with Tiffany Philippou, hosted by me, Tiffany Philippou. Anna Cordurado is the executive producer. Editing and mixing is by Chris Bannister. And you may recognise us because we've also got another show called Is This Working? So you can check that out too. And if you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review as that really helps more people find the show too. Thank you.